0: All right. Well, I'm joined here by Dr. Shanahan today on Pedagogy Non Grata. Welcome back to our podcast, and I'm really pleased to have him on our, our podcast today. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read from his biography, just because his, uh, his biography is so impressive that I don't want our, it to be lost on our listeners what an impressive resume this man has. So, Timothy Shanahan is a distinguished professor emeritus from the University of Illinois, Chicago, where he was the founding director of the ULC Center for Literacy, Previously, he was director of reading for the Chicago Public School. He's an author-editor of more than 200 publications on literacy education. His research emphasizes the connections between reading and writing, literacy in the disciplines, and improvement of reading achievement. Tim is a past president, president sorry, of the International Literacy Association. He has served as a member of the ad- advisory board of the National Institute for Literacy under both President George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and he helped lead the national reading panel convened at the request of Congress to evaluate research on the teaching regarding a major influence on reading education. He chaired two other federal research review panels, the National Literacy Panel for Language, Minority, Children, and Youth, and the National Early Literacy Panel, and helped write the Common Core Standards. Uh, he was inducted to the Reading Hall of Fame in 2007 and is a former first-grade teacher. Wow. what a That's had a very impressive resume. So. I'm a little humbled to have you on here today, to be honest. I've
1: been doing this for a long time, is, is the trick to that. Uh, <clears throat> I've been uh, studying reading and teaching reading now for over
0: 50 years. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs>
0: so is there anything you want to say about yourself to our listener before we get, get started in the interview, which I haven't already touched on from your, your biography?
1: Uh, just that I uh, because of that biography try to stay as close to the research as I possibly can so I'll w- as we talk uh, I'll try to distinguish what are research findings and what are my beliefs uh, so that folks know where to put the real weight and, and uh, you know what, what to take with a grain of salt
0: fair enough I, I like that I noticed you did that in your your blog which is how I, I first came across you and I uh, uh, I was imp- impressed by how clearly you did that and demonstrated the difference between the what the research said and what your personal impressions were and so that 's why uh, we were so excited to have you on in the first place. I learned about your impressive resume afterwards, which is probably to my own detriment but um, so we 're going to be talking today mainly about a developmentally appropriate practice and when it 's uh, developmentally appropriate to begin reading instruction. so my first question for you mr or dr. Shanahan is. Do we know if there's a developmentally appropriate age to begin reading instruction?
1: You know, part of this probably depends on what you mean by instruction. But uh, basically, the the, the the straight up answer is there has been no particular time period in in any language that anybody has found that is particularly beneficial to teaching reading or that's damaging in any way. Hmm.
0: Okay, so. And yet, you say that, and yet I have definitely come across some arguments uh, that people have been making, even to this day. And I have to admit, they're quite popular in my current um, province. Uh, What are these arguments that people seem to make against early reading instruction?
1: You know, over about a hundred year period, there have been a whole bunch of arguments against it. Um, uh, It's going to hurt the kid's vision. Uh, They're going to develop mental illness because of the pressure of it. Uh, They... Uh, won't have fun because it doesn't allow for any play. Uh, 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 there's going to be social emotional harm uh, to the kids. They'll be, become obese if you teach them in the <laughs> early years. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a couple, I mean, one that I just came across recently that in fact made me write that blog piece was that somebody was claiming that it even hurts literacy learning, that the kids do less well in literacy in the long term if they learn it early. Uh, and, and, of course, first the, the general one, and the one I think you probably hear the most of, is that it's just not developmentally correct. Mm. It, it doesn't necessarily carry any special implications with it, but it, it just sort of suggests that this is harmful to kids and, and just can't possibly help them or work. Um, none of those actually have uh, any real research support behind them, they're all just uh, Opinions, in some cases authoritative opinions, and yet after 100 years, you'd think some data would show up on that side of the argument. It it just hasn't at this stage.
0: Uh, Wow. Well, I I wasn't aware of the obesity one. That one's quite (laughs) funny (laughs) to me.
1: If you teach kids to read, they're going to like reading so much that they're never going to play or move around anymore, uh, which suggests that these folks don't spend much time with children because whether they can read or not, they move around a lot. Oh, it doesn't It doesn't really change that.
0: Yeah, I think part of what really grew my attention into evidence-based uh, instruction is actually was this topic we' we haven't ta- spent a ton of time talking about on the podcast, but I had a textbook specifically from the perspective you're discussing. Uh, and they made the claim in the opening of the textbook that teaching reading too early caused brain damage. And they, they claimed they had a citation for it, but they didn't actually provide said citation, which, just uh, blew my mind. But.
1: <laughs> you know, most of these haven't been looked at, and, and brain damage is certainly one that, as far as I know, hasn't been looked at. But, but things like the, the, the notion that it's going to do social and emotional harm to kids, that it's somehow anti-childhood and is making kids grow up too fast and is taking away their their opportunities to play and so on, I, I would argue... Uh, well, two things. One, I think it's a, an impoverished view of what it means to teach or learn reading. And and the second one, and it's really important, is if you actually look for data on that kind of an issue, uh, what you find is there are some data, but they don't go the direction of the claims. And, and so, for example, in the early 2000s in the, in the U.S., uh, there were big increases in the emphasis on... Uh, teaching literacy uh, to children in our Head Start program. So these are four-year-old children mainly, uh, some threes, but mainly four-year-old children. And there were uh, people wringing their hands, this is going to be terrible, this is going to do great social-emotional harm. Well, after a few years, they collected uh, you know, a huge amount of data nationwide and, and they found, yeah, the kids knew more about literacy as a result of the teaching. And what about the social-emotional functioning? You think that as those reading skills went up, those social-emotional abilities would go down. In fact, they went up. Uh, they went up to the same extent that the literacy did. And so making the kids more literate actually made them more socially, emotionally healthy. It didn't go the direction at all that, that, that the, the critics were sure it would. And, and we see those kinds of data again and again. that. Uh, the kids who are learning to read early tend to be pretty emotionally healthy, pretty happy, pretty playful. <laughs> and, and they certainly don't have brain damage to any more extent than any of the rest of us do. I,
0: I think in some ways it kind of highlights the needs for, for research, especially um, some level of quantitative research. It's just, we, we seem to get a lot of these very pseudoscience-y myths that pop up in popularity in education and it almost feels like if you just stopped to think about it really logically for a minute, you would be able to debunk it on, on its own. But you, you really do need something to point to, to, to combat these ideas. Okay, so um, you've kind of answered the, the first question, or my next question. In it. And I was just going to ask, what do you see as the, the problems with this argument? But I, I think you've addressed it. Is there anything you want to add just to that front?
1: Yeah, I know you're concerned, uh, at least one of your concerns is with, you know, dyslexic kids and so mm-hmm. on. So maybe we could just not get into dyslexia itself, but just get into the plight of of children who struggle to read for dyslexic reasons or for any other reason. Um, I, you know, I arguing for early literacy instruction doesn't necessarily... Uh, automatically raise reading achievement either, right? (laughs) You know, if if I'm saying that there's no magic time to do this, so let's not hold back, uh, you know, I'm not making the claim that, oh man, if you teach kids at three, that that's some special, uh, what's been described as portal of receptivity, that the kids are going to learn so much better if we start them when they're three. There are people who believe this, that they're they're absolutely certain that if you start them early, they're going to do magnificently better. And I can't tell you that there's a lot of research supporting that either,
0: well, that's uh, interesting.
1: <laughs> which is, you know, not, uh, terrific, but, uh, I think there's some reasons for that. It might be interesting to just talk about this for a m- moment. Um, let's imagine that you want to get a, a, a car up a ramp, right? It just you know, very, very simply, You've got a ramp, you've got a car, how do you get it up the ramp? What uh, will allow you to, to make this easier for the, the car to get up there? And you really have two choices. One choice is you can put, you know, put better fuel in the car or, or if, if we're talking about a children's car or something like that, put your hand on it, and push it really hard. Uh, you, know, you put a lot of pressure on the car. Another possibility, however, is you just simply lower the ramp and make it a longer ramp to go up it, it, it's it's uh, more graduated that way. It might take a little longer to get up. But you don't need as much pressure to accomplish it. When I used to teach first grade, this was before reading instruction was common in kindergarten, so there certainly weren't many kids in preschool. I had children coming in on the first day of first grade saying, I'm going to learn to read today that's a lot of pressure to put on a six year old, that they're gonna do, learn all this stuff during first grade year, they're gonna be successful the first time through and it's all gonna work. What if you you extended that ramp two, three, four years so that it's not we're gonna get this accomplished when you're six, we're gonna get this accomplished by the time you're six. And so that you you don't need all that pressure on the car, you just have a, a, a longer, more graduated ramp. And I think that that's, one of the arguments for uh, teaching it earlier, it's not just, oh, we're going to get everybody to higher levels of literacy, but you do take off a lot of that pressure. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's that's one piece of it. The opposite side or the other piece of that is, what if you are a youngster who really does struggle for some kind of organic or developmental reason, that there really is something that is making learning difficult for you? It increases the chances, if we start early, it increases the chances that you're going to discover that problem when the youngster's three or four instead of when they're five, six, or seven, which gives those kids multiple extra years to accomplish the goal that we're trying to accomplish with everybody. And, and that, again, not only takes off pressure on those kids, but increases their opportunity to learn dramatically. Sadly, in a lot of cases, even when we introduce literacy learning early, we don't try to take advantage of either of those. We, you know, we don't take advantage of that longer ramp. In other words, well, what, you know, how much literacy should the kids have when they're four? And can we get them reading books? You don't have to put that kind of pressure on. You got a lot of time. You've you've just added a couple of years to your, uh, to extend the ramp. And if it's a youngster who's struggling, too often we just write it off and say, oh, you know, he's all boy, or he's immature. He'll, you know, give it a year or two. Uh, and, and instead of you know trying to find out what's going on early on so that we can actually start to help as early as possible. So I really think that the, the benefits of starting earlier aren't necessarily that you're gonna end up with dramatically higher societal literacy, but I think you're gonna have a lot of kids who are learning literacy more successfully with a lot less pressure, and uh, some kids getting the extra years they're gonna need to actually succeed, just like their peers do.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I, I you know, having taught um, early primary for a period of my time, I, I can say, I would imagine that some of it is just prior knowledge and scaffolding. You know, uh, it's hard to teach um, reading words if you, if you haven't learned basic phonetic sounds. You know, uh, yes. And it's also, I'm sure, if you're teaching kindergarten, it's hard to teach phonetic sounds if uh, the student's behavior is interfering because they're not mature enough yet. But Absolutely. I I also
1: for, wouldn't. For, oh, sorry. If they haven't seen books or haven't been read to, or or you know don't have any idea what the teacher is trying to get at with any of this
0: stuff. Yeah, and and but I, you know I think it's just there's a difference between saying, okay, not all students might have the scaffolding, yet to be efficient learners by primary, and then to say, well, it's going to harm them somehow, to That's start right. learning. Uh, That's actually. right. The harm of learning.
1: So so I argue for starting early, as early as we possibly can, but not, uh, you know, in any kind of high pressured way. Uh, You know, I I, I think we want to see kids at at somewhat higher literacy levels than we've seen in the past, given the way we've constructed our societies. But frankly, uh, you want to make this as easy for kids as you can. You want to give them as much opportunity to learn as you can. Starting earlier just allows us to do that.
0: I, I think that's a one hundred percent reasonable uh, perspective to take. i I completely agree. Um, so you've kind of answered my next question too, in a way, but so when do you think reading instructions to start? You've kind of alluded earlier. Do you think it should start as young as a pre-kindergarten or even before then?
1: Again, this is going to really depend on what you mean by instruction. So, for example, when when my oldest daughter was born, I remember vividly taking books to the hospital to, on on day one. You know, she was 12 hours old, and I was reading to her. Now, that's a little crazy. You don't have to start quite that early. You can wait until they get home. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, the studies uh, show positive impacts of reading to young children as early as nine months old um, on their <clears throat> problem-solving abilities on, on any number of, of social emotional things and language development issues. Um, I don't see any reason to wait till kids are nine months old to start sharing books with them and so on. So I'd say you know I'd start doing those things that early. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a, a grandson who's about to have his eighth birthday, but I, I just came across a video that his mother sent me several years ago. Uh, he must have been about 14 months old, 16 months old, still sleeping in a crib. Um, he was in for his nap and mom has a camera on him so that she can monitor what's going on without having to enter the room. <clears throat> and uh, you could tell at his daycare uh, that the, the caretakers or teachers were uh, starting to read to the kids. And, and you could tell that because he literally took a book and, and was holding it up like he would, and showing the pictures to the kids. And he's babbling away like he's reading it. Wow. He's 14 or 16 months old. He's already trying to imitate reading and follow it. And, and because the way he was being read to at the time, was in a group. It wasn't mom or dad because he was so little, he was so young. But in fact, here was a kid who was showing you, I can pick up these routines. I can start to understand what this is about. I'm paying attention already. Uh, And and so I really argue uh, we should be talking to those babies. We should be reading to them, singing to them, uh, looking at books with them. Uh, All that kind of stuff should start really early uh, as kids get a bit older, uh, when they're, you know, two and three years old, you can start to do some other things. You can start to play some language games with them. Um, you can start to, um, uh, you know, to, you know, set up their library and, and play restaurant where they have to, you know, write up the the orders and, and uh, you know, play post office and they have to deliver the letters and people have to read them and, and all that kind of thing, or, or set up their own little newspaper and all these different kinds of play activities that are all centered on being exposed to books and language and learning how print works. Uh, and along the way, while you're doing that, you're not doing any harm to teach the kids the letter names and the letter sounds and to play, like I say, language games or sing language songs, you know, be banna bo banna, fee fi fi-fi-fo, you know, all that kind of silliness and play. Uh, two, three, four-year-olds can do all of those things and should be doing all of those things in, in, in all of our households. They, they certainly are doing those kinds of things in the household holds of upper-middle-class kids. Yeah. And yeah, sure. those kids are coming to school knowing an awful lot about literacy. There are a lot of other parents who've been scared to death that they're going to hurt their kids if they introduce that kind of thing early. Uh, usually parents who aren't quite as advantaged, and if anything, it's just holding their kids back. Uh, let's give everybody a chance for this kind of thing.
0: Well, wow, it's, it's a really interesting perspective. <clears throat> um and I hadn't really been expecting that. You know, I, I was expecting you to say, oh, pre-K or something or kindergarten. But uh, I guess from the teaching perspective, I never really think about the pre-schooling experience, right? Um, but it, it, it comes to – one of the points we've tried to make on this podcast is that people, we, we think, often forget a fundamental variable. They They focus so much on strategy, they forget time, yeah. you know you sometimes you just got to increase the amount of time that students uh, have to, to learn something but
1: absolutely and yeah you know, I'm, I'm certainly a teacher but I'm also a parent and I have eight grandkids oh wow So you know caring about uh, you know and only three of them at this stage have started real school you know they're in preschool and so on but uh, yeah they it, it, you this starts really really early and, and I you know I remember with one of my granddaughters we spent the first month with them and when, when she was born. And I was just constantly talking to her and singing to her and telling her jokes and stories and reading. And, and, and her parents thought it was nuts. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, but that was crazy. But in fact, those are the kinds of things that, that the youngest kids need. Now, of course, by the time kids are three and four and preschools are, are, are you know, kids are starting to move into those kinds of settings as, as, as well they should in such a complicated society as we live in. Um, you know, then we can get a little bit more formal. And, and like I say, teaching letters, teaching sounds, starting to work on some words, making sure kids can print their name, uh, you know, just real basic, simple stuff that children enjoy, that parents and, and teachers actually enjoy if they get a chance to do those things. Uh, and and uh, over time, as you say, the amount of, of that accumulates and has a huge, wonderful impact for the children.
0: Yeah, um, well, you kind of touched on, on my next question a bit and I, I was going to say how should uh, what type of instruction should happen at the beginning but you, you kind of alluded to that. so when do you think um, when do you think we should transition from letters to phonics and when do you think we should transition from phonics to words and how should we blend the teaching of words and phonics together at what yeah. stages? Um, uh, do you know, think there I are actually... specific stages or do you think it's more dependent on the individual learner
1: it's uh, it's a little bit. I don't think it, it, it depends a lot on stages. It certainly is something that has to come fairly early. I mean, letters and letter sounds are pretty basic in reading, as are learning I just the names of some real basic words, uh, including can you read your name? I, you know, <laughs> that's not a bad thing to be able to do when you're four and five years old. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, but it isn't oh my goodness, let's make sure they know all the letters before we talk to them about any words, or man, until they know what those letters are, they can't benefit from doing anything with the sounds. Uh, You know, I have another granddaughter when she was two, she knew all the letters and all their most basic sounds. Um, You know, you could learn it really, really easily in a lot of cases. Uh, With most of my grandkids and certainly all the children that I spent time teaching in these early years, I often do something uh, that teachers will know as language experience approach. But like you say, we're always worried about strategies and stuff like that. But for parents, all they have to think of it is, is it, it's actually writing down their kids' stories, writing down things their kids want to say, and, and reading those with them, and reading those back to them. And I mean, that, that might seem you know, really you know, basic or, or, or silly, but in fact, you know, the kids actually start reading their own words and their own ideas uh, in, in, in my home uh, earlier than they start uh, trying to read anybody else's. And, and, and so, you know, even if it's just saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at grandpa's house and, you know, I went to the toilet, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, one of the kids' stories, you uh, they're very proud of it and they read it and they can tell their parents what it says, and tomorrow they won't remember what it says, but that's okay. You know, we, we really start that basically. And so it's all kind of jumbled together. Uh, it might help if I suggest that maybe there are four kinds of things that we should be doing with kids, at, you know, at all the time. Okay. But certainly one of those things is working with letters and words, letters and sounds and words. And, and, and that is in a preschool or a kindergarten I would be doing that every day for some amount of time. Uh, a okay. second one uh, would be uh, trying to <clears throat> uh, uh, recite uh, poems and songs and the kind of language experience stories I just did that the boys and girls pretty much have memorized. Okay. You know, I, I'm not looking for stuff that they can, are going to have to figure out on the page. I'm looking for stuff that they have happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. you know they know the words to it. Because what I want to do, I want to give them that print and have them see if they can point to the words as they read it. Uh, what they often do is they point to the letters. So happy must be the H, birthday must be the A to you know and so on. Oh, that doesn't quite work. You got a lot of letters left over. So I want to, you know, get the kids sort of figuring out how do those words match up with that combination of letters and those spaces on the page, developing a concept for what a word is and how print and speech have to come together. Wow! I remember vividly when I was first a, a college professor and I was training teachers to go work with little kids, and I read a study that brought my attention to something that I had never noticed before, I didn't know it, and, and it was that the kids... Didn't know that the adults were reading the words. They thought they were making up stories with the pictures. Wow! I went home that night and grabbed my, I think, four-year-old daughter at the time, my oldest, and I, you know, sat her down, and I started to read, you know, the story to her like I normally would. But I did something a little different. Little kids are always putting their hands on the page, and adults either just sort of read through that, or they move the kid's hand and just keep going. And what I did. When I got to the words that she had covered up <clears throat> I just stopped <clears throat> and she looked up at me you know what what's going on here and I said you've covered the words and she says that's what you're reading <laughs> oh, I, God. Said, I, I said yeah <clears throat> she went oh and so then she, as I would read she'd try to cover she was <laughs> trying to figure out Uh, You know, where are his eyes? What's he looking at now? Can I cover it up and stop him? It became kind of a game for her. But it's a game that starts to teach her how print works and what you're looking for that you're moving left to right and what you do at the end of lines and all that really little stuff that you have to learn early on. So i put some time into that. Um, A third thing, these kids aren't reading yet, so you're not gonna teach reading comprehension, but that doesn't mean you can't work with listening comprehension, reading stories and. Not just stories, but text you know, you talked about prior knowledge being so important, talking you know, reading about the world, reading about science and social studies, that our natural and our social worlds, exposing kids to ideas and talking to them about those things and asking them questions about it and, and, and getting them thinking about that. Certainly working on vocabulary, learning the meanings of those words. And then a, a final one would be <clears throat> get the kids writing. Get them trying to get their own ideas on paper, using those letters and, and sounds, seeing what they can do with that. That's one of the best things they can do to develop their phonemic awareness skills. It's a, it's really useful in terms of practicing with their letters and so on. And so I would make sure that they're getting those letters and words. They're getting that kind of finger point reading that I talked about, listening, comprehension, and writing. And those should be happening pretty much every day in a in a preschool classroom, or a kindergarten classroom, or, or frankly, not quite that, that organized, but at home, over time, all those things should be happening.
0: Yeah, I, I really loved your answer there. Um, I, I have to admit, maybe in part because it's confirmation bias, but um, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't really aware of it at first, but I am recently aware that there's been a lot of hot button debate over how early literacy instruction should start in what form, um, whether it be with you know, phonetic instruction or whole language instruction. And I remember thinking back to my when I first started teaching. I had, was fresh out of college, and I thought, okay, I have to teach phonics and phonics only at the start. And my kids, they really didn't seem to get that the sounds I was trying to teach them applied to words. So we spent hours and hours on teaching decoding, and I'd show them a word, and they couldn't apply it. So then I started trying to teach them words at the same time, and all of a sudden it started to click, and I started to have some success. Some success. To be honest, ever since then I've been absolutely convinced that you can't teach them in isolation. You can't, you know. You
1: got to do all of the essential things, not just some of the essential things. And that if there's anything bad in our current debates, is is that folks get focused on a particular element of literacy. And they either say, there's too much of that, let's get it out of there. Or they say, there isn't enough of that, let's get everything else out of there without thinking of the, the whole picture. Yeah. For years as a, as a consultant with school districts, I would go out, and I was pretty good at this. In fact, I still am. I'd go out and I'd work with these, these teachers and I could do a workshop and people would say, that's good stuff, we're gonna take that back to our classroom. And let's say I was doing something on vocabulary. Teachers are, what they're hearing is, oh, the district wants me to do more vocabulary. Vocabulary is the good thing. I'm going to do less phonics and more vocabulary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that isn't what I was saying. I was saying you got to teach vocabulary. That's one <coughs> of those important things to do. Let's put some time into that. And the teachers are hearing, ah, this is the important thing. Let's... So at some point I wised up and I started, no, no, no. We're always going to talk about words and their parts. We're always going to talk about fluency and that ability to to read text. We're always going to talk about comprehension. And we're always going to talk about writing. And you don't get to pick the ones you like. And you don't get to to, uh, skip the ones you don't. We're going to do all of them. What I would tell my teachers, for example, if you don't like teaching phonics, you're going to be unhappy a quarter of the time because our kids are going to get that kind of instruction. Uh, When we did that in Chicago and made sure that kids were getting uh, this kind of teaching in in all of those areas, we saw dramatic improvements in literacy levels. And I'm not talking about oh yeah, I'm two of our school. So I'm talking six hundred schools. I'm talking 437,000 kids, 85 percent of whom are growing up in poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's you know I was told oh you couldn't possibly raise their achievement. Well, our teachers did, but they didn't do it by only teaching one magical thing they did it by teaching four magical things um that's the i, I think that's a real key
0: yeah it, it kind of reminds me and uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about this podcast but I, I feel like oftentimes within our industry there's this this colloquial understanding that the purpose of evidence-based education is supposed to be to find that one weird trick that's going to magically improve teaching and I, I really don't think there is one weird trick, and if anything, I feel like evidence-based education should be dispelling this notion that you're gonna find some magic secret. But,
1: it, you know, the, the people in the research community know that, and for the most part, with a few notable exceptions, they're pretty good about that part of it. The, the problem is, for researchers, is you have to be so focused that if you go after a problem that's just about fluency or just about writing or whatever, Uh, You know, that's what you know, and that's the note that you strike, and that's the information that you share with folks. And you need the curriculum people and the instructional people to say, that's terrific, and here's where that fits. Mm. Uh, They're kind of depending on us to do that. That isn't how it tends to work. Instead, the person goes out and says, look what I found about this terrific way to teach phonics. This is what you should be doing. And all of a sudden, you have three school districts dropping everything (laughs) else and doing that one thing. And the poor researcher was thinking, I'm sure they fit it into where it belongs, but of course nobody's even tried to do that. And, and and so, like I say, once I kind of wised up around that, all of a sudden my consulting got a lot more powerful. Instead of it changing teachers' behavior, it started raising kids' achievement, hmm. uh, which is really what we're, we're trying to do, is, is make better readers, not just better teachers.
0: Wow. I, I, I really enjoy hearing that. That's interesting. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm trying to fight the urge to uh, to devolve my direction of the podcast into research methodology because you kind of hinted on it a little bit. But uh, it's weirdly a, a pet topic of mine, that, but my my listeners, they get bored, I think, when I talk about it too much. So I, I lose <laughs> ratings. But uh, should, so back to the topic hand: should specific types of instruction occur at any age? Like... Do we think, like, at any point, should we start to focus more and more on comprehension and less and less on um, reading fluency and vocabulary? Or should we focus more in one direction towards phonics at a certain age? Yeah.
1: Some of the—I I think part of the problem is you've got all these different lines of development, right? Each mm-hmm. of these areas is, is growing and, and developing. And they—some of them have a fairly short shelf life. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the benefits of phonics are pretty much an early childhood issue. i um, not saying that there aren't any remedial kids or older kids who, for whatever reason, they didn't get the instruction. They struggled for some you know, constitutional reason with the instruction. They were sick and they weren't going to school. during that. All kinds of reasons why I can come up with why, uh, say, a 12-year-old might not know how to decode very well. But the fact of the matter is, most of our boys and girls in Western English-speaking countries, frankly, can decode pretty darn well by the time they're about six, seven, eight years old.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and not saying you don't need any more beyond that, but you don't need very much. So it it kind of goes out of the equation. Yeah. So for example, in Chicago, uh, I didn't focus. You know, I, I was talking about those four pieces. I talked. Uh, about words and and their their parts, um, not just uh, phonics, which means that, frankly, as phonics instruction starts to go away, and it only goes away because the kids accomplish what they need to with it. They, you know, it's not, oh, now it's bad for kids. It just isn't necessary because they've already got what they need from that. Hmm. Well, gee, if you're still focused on words, what do you do with that if you're, say, a 10th grade teacher or you teach, you know, fifth graders vocabulary? morphology. You know, we work with words. And, and so I want my 10th grade teacher spending as much time on words as my first grade teacher. I just want them focused on slightly different things. The, the primary teacher is going to be mainly focused on phonemic awareness and phonics and perhaps a little bit of vocabulary. Those those older kids, it's almost all going to be vocabulary and morphology. It's, you, yeah, that's where you want that time spent. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's... That's that notion. So, so because some of these pieces go away, uh, they're all important. They're all essential. But because some of them have a lower ceiling, so they get accomplished earlier. They go out of the curriculum, or they become a very tiny piece of the curriculum. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff to do during that time. You know, building these kids' language, building their knowledge, uh, making sure that they they know how to think effectively when they're reading, knowing how to. Uh, use writing and, and discussion to improve their reading, and so on and so forth. So there's there's we I don't cut the amount of reading instruction as we move up the grades. And mm-hmm. it, it does shift though yeah. uh, in in character based on on mm-hmm. what kids know.
0: I agree with that, and I I think you you provided a really well nuanced answer. Although I I have to laugh a little because I'm hearing all this nuance, and I think someone out there is going to hear this and hear all they're going to hear is he doesn't believe in phonics.
1: But. Oh, sure, but, you know, I look at the phonics studies, we reviewed them for the National Reading Panel, which was a, a U.S. Uh, effort. Uh, they, they appointed a, a panel of scientists to review the research and tell our U.S. Congress what essentially what works in reading. And we reviewed the all the, the studies that met quality standards at the time, 38 studies on the teaching of phonics, and. And overwhelmingly came to the conclusion that it was clearly beneficial in kids learning, but that, frankly, the big payoffs from it came in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. By the time kids were seven, the payoffs got really, really small. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I'm very strong on on phonics preschool through second. And and, again, not everybody develops at exactly the same you know, time frame. So let's say through third grade, uh, you know, the notion of having phonics as a fairly heavy dose uh, in our schools makes a lot of sense to me. Beyond that, except for kids who are really struggling with phonics, I I would give very tiny amounts of it, usually tied to their spelling work and, and things like that. Uh, wouldn't do a whole lot with explicit phonics, not because I don't believe phonics is powerful but simply because the research hasn't found that it has much benefit beyond that
0: yeah no I think that makes total sense and i uh, i've I've had the opportunity to teach every grade in a full-time capacity from kindergarten to grade twelve English actually um, and i I completely agree from my perspective and experience um, Although you know, of course, the one difference being if you have, say, a student for whatever reason—I think we're going to touch on this more in a second—who might be, say, grade eight, um, and for whatever reason has missed some bare bones phonetic knowledge that's holding them back in their reading instruction. Well, then, of course, I think you should go back and address that. But and I they think... we're on the same
1: page on that, Do, but and that's... the research would support that too. So it's not just an—that's not an opinion. That's a yeah. There are research studies showing that. Um, But those studies also show that, unlike with the little kids, because the text that the older kids are being asked to read and the the demands on them are such, that working with phonics with those older kids doesn't have much of an impact on their reading comprehension, doesn't Mm. have much of an impact on their spelling, the words are more complex that they're dealing with. Uh, That doesn't mean we shouldn't be teaching it, but it does mean that a, a good remedial effort with those older kids is not just gonna include a strong phonics component for, for the kids who are low on that, but it's also going to be working on their language and, and, and trying to build up their knowledge and so on. So it's not going to be quite as narrow as you, you know, if you, if you were doing something with a group of first graders and said, I, you know, we're going to do a remedial program, we're only going to do phonics with them. Yeah, You find a substantial number of, of little kids who may be lagging in phonics, and then if you just gave them some extra phonics, they would improve in every aspect of literacy, and you would have been a superstar you mm-hmm. do the same thing with a group of 12-year-olds, and you probably won't have much of an impact. And yeah. so it should be part of it. It shouldn't be the whole thing.
0: And I, I think that part of this is the uh, brings the attention for the re- the need of diagnostics. I mean, if you have a student who's struggling to learn how to read, I think you have to understand what the issue is. I had a, yeah. a student last year who was in grade 8, um, uh, and they were reading below level and by a significant amount. And I went to do... My first thought was check their phonics understanding. But when I looked for blends and even single letter sounds they knew all of them they knew all the basic phonetic phonetic sounds they just weren't able to apply that knowledge so then we went and just started practicing it with whole words and lo and behold their language improved
1: one of the things that's really effective with kids who test well in phonics but don't read well is fluency work Mm -hmm. where you actually try to read text usually aloud so that somebody can hear what you're doing and make you go back and read it again and so on uh, but essentially, uh, you know, trying to you know come up to some level of standard in how well you can actually process those texts. And there are a number of ways that people do that, but again, research is very supportive of that. But you're, if you haven't tested the kids' reading, haven't tested their decoding skills, you're not going to know what to do. You're not going to know where to put your time.
0: You can't just assume.
1: Now, one of the ways to think of this, you know, I, I said that there should be four things always done in the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the way we did it in Chicago was we really balanced the time. And so I told teachers they had to spend two to three hours a day on, on working on reading and writing. And I, I wanted a quarter of that time on words and word parts. I wanted a quarter of that time on fluency. I wanted a quarter of that time on comprehension. I wanted a quarter of that time on writing. So you kind of balance the curriculum. Mm-hmm. The situation you're talking about where you have a youngster who's lagging for some reason and you want to pull them out and give them some additional help. One hopes you want to give them additional help. Yeah. I don't worry about balancing the curriculum. i worry about balancing the child. Yeah. And so if he's lacking something, and is stronger in something else, I'm probably gonna put most of my time in the area that he's hurt in, where he's not real strong, to try to pull that up to more even level with the areas where he is stronger. Yeah. And so in a classroom, you balance the curriculum because you got such a mix of kids; they all need different things. You know, you, you, it, it's not. Possible to individualize for everybody if you have 30 kids in your class, you no. but You're working in a small group or an individual because they're having special problems You better know what's missing for them. And like I say you balance them You're still working with the four things but it man. Maybe I'm not doing any writing with this youngster I'm only working with his phonics right now or gee, you know, the kid you're talking about, I'd be doing a lot of fluency stuff with them. I don't know if I'd do anything else. I'd have to you know, know more information about them, but I'd definitely be doing that. I certainly wouldn't be doing phonics if he had those skills that you said he did.
0: Yeah. No, so, yeah. and it's it's funny. It might have been just that every person saw that student was behind and assumed, okay, the student is behind. We have to teach some phonics yeah. without checking. Um, yes. Now, I mean, we're kind of, I think, we've almost been addressing this issue from the side since the beginning of the conversation we really we started talking about developmental appropriate practice but um i was hoping to get some of your insight on the the topic of dyslexia if only briefly mm-hmm. um so something i was curious if you think is do you think there's a difference between the colloquial understanding of what dyslexia is and the the actual clinical understanding of it
1: Oh, you know, I think that there's a lot of very, I don't know if there's a systematic difference between those two views, but I think there's such a wide range of views of what dyslexia means in the public and even in, in, you know, in professional groups that um, it's, when somebody tells me that a child has dyslexia, you know, I try to be very sympathetic, but I also try to do what you were suggesting earlier: find out as much as I can about the kid to find out what's really going on with them. You know, yeah. what kind of problem he's having. Uh, dyslexia usually implies that the the problem is constitutional, mm-hmm. it's developmental. It's 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 in the child. It, it's you know it, it, how his brain is processing information. Uh, how his brain is developing. And we have enough evidence to say there definitely are kids who have that uh, kind of a a problem or a, a disorder or a syndrome. Uh, but the fact is, when you were doing your uh, assessment of that youngster, you didn't run an MRI on him, did you, by any chance?
0: You did, no. you did. <laughs> you did. I didn't do a genetic test either, actually.
1: You didn't take him down to the, you know, magnetic resonance machine and run, you know, some kind of test to see if if there were particular things going on in his brain and, and, and so on. And and we don't, and neither do typical psychologists or even psychiatrists when they're they're working with kids. It's a developmental disorder that is typically characterized by a special difficulty in learning to read.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that gets a little tricky simply because uh, there are other things that can make learning to read hard, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, For example, what if a youngster, I, I remember when I was teaching first grade, it wasn't in my class, but in another teacher's class, it was a youngster who had just a number of illnesses, measles, all kinds of things. She missed like 130 days of school mm-hmm. uh, out of 180, 185 days. Um, she didn't learn to read very well. I guess yeah. that shouldn't surprise us. She wasn't learning because there was something wrong in her brain, or that she was at the you know special part of the, the learning curve. She just wasn't getting as much opportunity to learn because she was just especially sickly for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, she just needed more instruction. Uh, she didn't need any kind of special anything. Uh, what if I'm in a class where the teacher's just not very good? Yeah. Uh, and that happens too, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we always certainly want to champion our, our wonderful teachers. Uh, I had great teachers working with me and for me in Chicago, but the 25,000 teachers, do you think every one of them was a, you know, a, a, a magnificent teacher? Uh, there's, there's no way that that can possibly be true with any group of people. No. And, 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 and so, uh, you know, if this youngster's not learning to read... Uh, I'm probably not going to go looking to see if their brain is working uh, in a particular way because I don't have anything I can do about that. Uh, but I am going to look to see what they know how to do, what they can't do, what they're having trouble with, and I'm going to try to teach that. There definitely are dyslexic kids. What I'm finding these days is people in the community that, that really focuses on dyslexia don't always agree with what dyslexia is. hmm So, for example, a very large percentage of them uh, champion the idea that it's largely a phonological problem, which is why phonics becomes so important. And I'm in that group. I agree with them. I think that makes sense to me. But when I talk to special education teachers here in my community, they tell me they get referrals from psychologists and psychiatrists that will tell that the kid has no phonological problems whatsoever and he's dyslexic. (laughs) So it's like, wait a minute, and you know it's, uh, again there are multiple reasons why kids can have trouble. Uh, It would be great if we came up with a very specific kind of nomenclature. We don't, and so you'll hear, depending on the individual's dyslexia, reading disorder, reading disability, struggling reader, all those terms used interchangeably, Mm -hmm. and I think your job as a professional is to recognize somebody's saying that because this kid is having trouble learning to read. I don't know whether it's constitutional or whether it's due to his environment, but I know he's having trouble because they wouldn't be referring this kid for any other reason. And now my job is to figure out what instruction is needed and how I could help him with that. Um, if you go to a neurologist who really could run the kinds of tests I was talking about and who would say, this kid's brain is operating a little differently than these other kids, if you ask them what do you do to t- teach that kid to read, they say, well, you, you get a reading teacher and you have them teach the stuff that you teach to make a reader. They don't know how to teach that. They don't know what those kids need. <laughs> they just know that there's this this youngster really is uh, processing information differently than other other people, and that it is cor- it, and, and that difference is correlated with reading problems, and that that suggests that it's that that particular problem is in the child. My job as a teacher is still to try to overcome that by teaching them. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to go in and, and, and do brain surgery. Yeah, uh, I, I, There's no medicine I can give them that's going to fix this. Uh, can I teach them to read despite that difference? And in fact, what we find is in, in most cases you can, but it takes good instruction. And as you said earlier, at targeted instruction. You have to teach the things the youngster needs. You don't get to pick the ones you like. You just... You know if this youngster's having trouble with phonological processing, ducking that probably isn't going to fix it uh you know spending some time on it uh has a chance of helping them and and research would suggest quit help
0: yeah that makes makes a lot of sense i I completely agree with what you said i I sometimes get concerned because i f- I hear people making very specific claims uh about dyslexia and then but at the same time i I also wonder you know. We're not, like you said, we're not using MRI machines to diagnose. We're not using genetic tests. And even the research on genetics shows that while there's multiple genes that can trigger these dyslexia symptoms, and some of the students with dyslexia uh, don't have any of the genes that have been identified with it. And you, you talk about, you know, working in Chicago. I worked for a long time in a, um, a very far north uh, disadvantaged community. And um, we also had very high rates of diagnosed Dyslexia much higher than normal, and you see this often in in minority areas or racialized areas, higher dyslexia rates, and it almost makes you think, well, some of this can't – has to be sociological. Otherwise, we have a very – much more disturbing narrative that obviously can't be true. um, Well, there's certainly
1: reasons why children living in poverty are are less likely to learn, and some of that might be physical too because we know. Poverty has certain impacts on the brain and nutrition and and all that kind of thing. But part of what we mean by socioeconomic status isn't just money, it's parents' education level and what their language levels are and how much schooling they've had. Uh, All of that affects kids' learning. Yeah. And so you go, well that's not in the child, that's in their environment, that's, you know, they're not being exposed to the same language that their peers are, they don't, gee, because they don't have a lot of money, they don't have the books that are available to some of their peers, they're, you know, there are all kinds of, of reasons why kids might be lagging behind, which is why some people go out of their way to avoid terms like dyslexia. No matter what term you come up with, it starts to drift in meaning. You know, those people you talked about earlier would tell you that dyslexia has a very specific meaning. It does to them. And if it did to everybody else, it would be fine. Yeah. But the problem is we don't have agreements on when to use those terms and when not to and what they mean. And, gee, if you don't have the gene for that, then do we put you in a different category? Those things haven't been worked out. There's not any big benefit in the short run, at least, to working them out. Um, but focus on the kid. Focus on what that youngster can and cannot do. And you teach. That's that's the, the solution uh, to that problem. And, and, and it's it, again, it's teaching the right stuff. But you, you figure that out not by uh, genetic tests. You figure that out by studying their reading.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, I had other questions to ask you about this, but you're, you're a very um, articulate and prolific speaker, so you kind of address all of my questions <laughs> before I get to them. Um, so I, I think I'm going to leave it there. I really want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast. You have a, a very warm enthusiasm and passion for talking about education. I'm not actually used to. Oftentimes <laughs> I talk to researchers and they, they are very passionate, but you're, you're laughing and smiling as we're talking, which... You know, it's a a funny thing to say, but I can just sense this enthusiasm you have for the topic. It's nice to to hear it, actually.
1: Teaching kids is is a joyful way to spend your life. Uh, It's not a bad thing. Uh, (laughs) So we should be happy about it, and and enthusiasm comes naturally in that. Thank you for your logical questions. Maybe that's how I got ahead of you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you very much.